Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you. That's a very generous round of applause. You might want to wait until after the talk. Uh, I might get thrown out. But um, uh, okay. Um, so, uh, in his book uh, *Bittersweet*, published in 2003, uh, Chris Futner suggested that the development of insulin therapy for people with diabetes was a success story tinged with irony. Uh, insulin and other treatments, he proposed, extended life expectancy as we could see by the table that I'm going to hand wave at, but not go into any detail, um, uh, but transmuted diabetes into an evolving biological entity. It became a disease which killed over years and decades and which inflicted damage to almost every organ in a patient's body. Through his examination of letters, diaries, and clinical records, though, uh, Futner's work uh, also reminds us that people with diabetes are obviously more than a compilation of biological mechanisms. Their encounters with disease have been influenced by social and personal variables, such as access to medical care or family support, as well as by the values of their doctors and the cultural understandings of illness predominant in particular times and places. So today I want to uh, follow Bittersweet's example and consider what it has meant to doctors uh, and patients in 20th century Britain to live with what Futner calls a disease in motion. Uh, through a review of textbooks, uh, journal articles, patient handbooks, and oral history testimony, I'm going to give a bird's eye survey of how diabetes management in 20th century Britain uh, has been intertwined with shifting social and economic structures, cultural values, and political changes. It's going to be sort of using uh, really quite short examples to make illustrative points uh, rather than a particularly in-depth case study uh, of a particular uh, moment, but hopefully this will bring out some um, ideas about uh, the, the, the stories that we tell in the history of medicine. Um, where possible, I'm also going to highlight the ways that uh, patients have negotiated their uh, management programs in relation to life circumstances and social demands. And as I suggest, in, in doing so, uh, I want to propose that we can tell diverse histories about medicine uh, by moving slightly aside from uh, important scientific and clinical developments, or at least uh, by contextualizing their generation and implementation. By thinking outside of terms like progress or narratives of heroes and villains, historical plurality uh, might also help us to think about our world slightly differently. Okay. Um, I also have to apologize for the slightly changing room style slides that were thrown in there. Um, the computer kept advising me to use these design innovations and in a bit of a panic, I just clicked yes to stop it judging me. Um, apparently they've done away with a paperclip, so it's quite difficult to get rid of now. But, um, there we go. Uh, so perhaps unsurprisingly for an historian, um, this paper is going to be broadly chronological. I believe um, Mark is going to talk a bit on the isolation of uh, insulin. So I'm going to begin my story uh, in the 1920s and 30s after insulin had been introduced to Britain. Uh, from here, I'll discuss the impact of uh, the NHS on care in the 1940s. And then I'll examine post-war advice on disease management and how this often omitted certain types of patients from its thinking. 
Finally, I'll conclude by tracing the growing inclusivity and patient-focused, uh, patient-centered focus of care in the 1980s and 1990s, whilst highlighting some of its limitations. Okay. Um, now, perhaps a more interesting paper would have focused on the contested and shifting understandings of diabetes over the 20th century and consider what change over time means to conceptualizing disease historically. Uh, I'm slightly more dull, uh, and to keep uh, focus on management, I'll provide just a brief summary of how diabetes was sort of defined and thought about in the 1920s and 30s before moving on. So uh, diabetes was largely understood as a metabolic disturbance characterized by persistently elevated blood glucose levels and development of quote-unquote acidosis and coma in certain cases. In terms of typology, there had been various classificatory systems and explanations for difference um, produced during the 20th century, um, but in the face of considerable clinical diversity, most practitioners group patients pragmatically. So it's generally based on whether they were liable to ketosis and whether insulin or later tablets would be required to control disease alongside dietary measures. Uh, this division of patients did influence, the, uh, did influence management programs in ways I won't have time to discuss today, uh, but the takeaway point is that the growth of metabolic understandings meant that diabetes management in the 20th century broadly focused on the control of blood sugar levels uh, and the prevention of uh, ketones developing. And to achieve this, doctors created managerial frameworks of, of intervention, ongoing surveillance, and therapeutic adjustment, uh, regardless of modality. Uh, okay, so uh, managerial approaches to diabetes care then uh, were strongly shaped by important scientific developments at the turn of the century. Um, so at the, the heart of treatment in the uh, early 20th century was a drastic undernutrition diet, including periods of fasting, which became increasingly popular during the 1910s. The development of insulin therapy in the 1920s allowed for considerably more ambulatory care, and the development of home testing kits for glycosuria and ketonuria in the same decade assisted long-term surveillance. Of course, as Futner has mentioned, these developments were not themselves without complications. Uh, needles and syringes uh, were, uh, required sterilization and skills to, skill to use. And I believe Mark is going to provide some pictures of, uh, of, those, of needles and syringes from that period later on. Uh, similarly, home urine testing depended on heating a sample of urine, uh, adding a reagent, and then assessing the resulting color change. And an assessment could be difficult and mistakes rather unpleasant. Uh, moreover, after insulin became readily available in Britain after 1923, treatment also considerably was also considerably stratified sorry, by class and local medical structures and cultures. Um, so if we take uh, issues of class first, um, these manifested most evidently in the interwar period in terms of access to expertise and insulin in Britain's mixed economy of health services. Patients undertaking manual labor or earning an income uh, below a threshold um, that was set by central government uh, were eligible for treatment in general practice under the nation, nascent national insurance scheme. So provided uh, workers were not sacked following their diagnosis, uh, the costs of consultation and insulin could be met by insurance funds. The scheme, however, did not cover dependents, uh, which largely meant that many married working class and middle class women were left without the means to access care. 
some temporary assistance could arise from local public health bodies, but this could prove, prove controversial, and there was a considerable amount of um, central government discussion about whether this was an abuse of legislation uh, during the early 1920s. Uh, other public provision could be made for children who attended welfare clinics and for adults in old pool or hospitals, um, but the latter subjected patients to rather harsh means testing. Lacking uh, such eligibility, everybody else would have to pay uh, direct fees to local hospitals and private practitioners for consultations, laboratory testing, insulin and equipment for self-care. So you can see how uh, there would have been a stratified levels of access to healthcare services at this point in time. Um, particularly in the uh, early 1920s, such payments could be crushing if not unaffordable. Um, so in 1923, we can see that the average wage of a semi-skilled worker was roughly two pounds, eight shillings, and five pence. Uh, I haven't worked out what that is in modern-day money, but hopefully there's enough people here that would get a sense of that. Um, and the average dose uh, for a single, average cost for a single dose of insulin was uh, two shillings, six pence. So roughly five percent of uh, someone's weekly average wage. Uh, state regulation drastically brought prices down uh, the following year to about eight pence per dose, but even if you work out one dose a day um, over a week would still amount to about 10% of that income, and that's without the cost of consultation or self-testing equipment. The result was thus often that uh, poorer patients had to accept less generous treatment, so in 1929, uh, one GP reported giving patients an amount of insulin per day commensurate with their means, uh, ranging from five units to the commonly prescribed amount of 20 units. Uh, the author noted on such doses that patients were able to work and live without symptoms, but they had to abandon the ideal of care applied to those with greater access um, to expertise and drugs, uh, namely the ideal that the blood sugar does not arise above 0.15, or I think that translates to 8.3 uh, millimoles per litre in new money uh, at any point of the day. Uh, even for those who could afford insulin, though treatment strategies were influenced by other factors besides costs, uh, local medical cultures and personal values of clinicians were particularly important. So, for instance, in the early 1920s, many London specialists tended to treat diabetes uh, strictly as a biochemical problem. So, for them, ensuring ERSAT's regu uh, physiological regulation of blood sugars was paramount, regardless of patient experiences. Other clinicians, uh, by contrast, had moral concerns, uh, worried that insulin would encourage doctors and patients to, quote, neglect dietary con uh, control, end quote, and to use wasteful amounts to compensate for what they considered lax diets. Although more liberal than most, even the renowned Phoenician Robin, physician Robin Lawrence, who was educated and raised in Aberdeen, uh, though at this point working in King's College Hospital in London, um, condemned the unnecessary employment of insulin to obtain luxuries because such an approach violated the best principle of treatment and led to indiscretions and liberties in the diet. Uh, many uh, clinicians who felt this way had been influenced by uh, ideals of restraint and self-control, which had underpinned imperialist and Christian senses of masculinities, 
often dominant during their own upbringing. So uh, Lawrence, for instance, was the son of a Kirk member and served in the army. And at this time, medical education uh, was um, often involves sort of ideals of sporting achievement and rugby in particular formed uh, a way in which people uh, formed networks that would find employment later on. Uh, nonetheless, whatever the guiding principle, the outcome for patients was often the same. Punishing diets of around 20 calories per kilo of weight for patients. So for someone who was 11 a stone, that would roughly translate, I think, to uh, about 1,300 calories a day. And sparing use of insulin. Uh, this was often withheld for patients considered unable to metabolize more than 50 grams of carbohydrate. Uh, even for these patients, though, uh, early diets offered 70 grams of carbohydrate, which is about three slices of bread um, a day, as a sufficient daily amount. This was particularly challenging in British dietary culture, which at the time was grounded in carbohydrates. There's a couple of figures up there um, of the uh, average middle-class diet in the 1930s, and carbohydrate is by far the largest uh, figure um, of component sorry, of the diet by that time. Um, and this was particularly focused around staples like bread and potatoes. Uh, one article it published in the 1940s recalled uh, the author's struggles upon diagnosis in 1925 uh, when he lived on five units of insulin delivered twice daily for a 2,500 calorie diet uh, which had only 34 grams of carbohydrate in it. The author simply exclaimed, you try getting through three to four ounces of butter with only one ounce of bread spread on it, to spread it on. For me, that sounds ideal, but uh, I'm just being picky. Uh, such prescriptions slowly changed in the 1920s and early 30s, uh, though not for overweight patients controlled on diet alone. Uh, for um, patients considered to have the most quote-unquote severe diabetes, uh, daily carbohydrate allowances were increased to between 120 grams and 250 grams per day, though concerns about novel patterns of vascular disease drew attention to fat contents. Uh, now, this approach was particularly common among doctors in the first specialist outpatient clinics whose growing familiarity with their patients' difficulties generated considerable sympathy. Uh, I have a couple, a few quotes up here about the rationales that they uh, gave for alleviating and liberalizing diet. Um, so we have one leading figure in the 30s acknowledging that men live in homes and not in calorimeters, and he, he sort of felt that more liberal carbohydrate allowances would allow patients to um, eschew weighing food. Uh, Lawrence likewise suggested that increases in carbohydrates for diet would make them happier mentally, if not much improved physically. And leading medical journals also commented approvingly that patients need no longer make themselves conspicuous by avoiding foods which contain carbohydrate. And this was not an insignificant consideration when a diagnosis could mean losing one's job or pension, or when friends or relatives might think of your disease as being infectious. Uh, into the 1940s then, uh, we see many leading clinicians rebalancing the emphasis they placed on metabolic control in relation uh, to patients' practical challenges, psychological struggles, and social demands. The most extreme manifestation of this consideration, however, came in the form of free diets. Uh, as the quotes on the board indicate, advocates for free diets rejected uh, most restrictions. Uh, on diets and disregarded hypoglycemia as a concern unless it was accompanied by ketosis. 
Uh, instead, a patient's subjective vigor and capacity for work became the true measures of success. Now, historians uh, have suggested it's quite easy to condemn these approaches as dangerous now, um, but free dieting has to be contextualized within the historical uncertainty that existed around the relationship between control and complications, which were um, the many of the complications were then beginning to be charted in great detail. So retrospective analysis of case files produced conflicting results, and clinicians could always recall that one case uh, who was considered well-controlled, but who ended up suffering from complications nonetheless. Uh, similarly, animal studies suffered problems with translation to man, and clinical trials suffered from limitations in testing. So blood sugars, they would argue, only provided a snapshot, and urine tests only provided proxy measures. So it was not until large-scale studies appeared in the 1980s and 1990s that publications confidently linked vascular complications to controllable variables, but in a pre-existing state of epistemic uncertainty, physicians prescribing free diets weighed uh, the certainty about short-term well-being against the possibility of long-term damage and opted to support the former. Now, uh, free dieting eventually um, sort of faded away and gained little support in Britain. Uh, clinicians generally striking a more cautious position. Uh, they imposed therapeutic limitations, but accepted hyperglycemia as a reasonable outcome and a buffer to hyperglycemic reactions. Uh, a more substantive change to diabetes care in the 1940s instead came from political developments, namely the creation of a national health service and the social democratic welfare state. Uh, now, the NHS addressed innumerable historic inequalities in access to treatment and removed many financial barriers to ac accessing expertise, and as well as spreading hospital clinics throughout the country. Some disparities were reintroduced after financial crises led to the introduction of prescription charges in 1952, but exemptions and supplements were available and doctors were allowed to include all medication and self-care apparatus on one long-term prescription, so this helped minimize some of the impact. Uh, nonetheless, the NHS still had gaps in its coverage and could not solve all inequalities alone. So, uh, so for instance, as I noted at the beginning of the paper, um, self-care required certain physical and cognitive capacities and elderly patients without family in particular could struggle. There were some uh, innovative physicians, such as Joan Walker in Leicester, uh, who pioneered health visiting in the 1950s, and district nursing schemes could provide some assistance with injections where it was available. The British Diabetic Association, which was formed in 1934, uh, now Diabetes UK, uh, also set up some homes, though they were not without charges. However, financial stringencies uh, meant that the NHS had limitations, especially in rural areas, and even into the 1960s, uh, many doctors and service administrators afforded neither diabetes nor elderly patients particularly high priority. Domiciliary support for elderly patients, therefore, was often patchy, and community schemes did not always last. The Leicester program, for instance, suffered disruptions, and attention to elderly, uh, elderly patients uh, generally depended upon political interest and the commitment skill of local practitioners. Studies in Leeds, moreover, also revealed that class distinctions had not been eradicated overnight. According to one study, the average quote-unquote diabetic diet cost around 23 shillings in 1949, compared to a 10-shilling average for the quote-unquote non-diabetic equivalent. 
The authors suggested that cost was particularly damaging for elderly patients and that dietary adherence in working class populations worsened as time passed away from payday. Uh, of course, class differences could also influence disease management in less overt ways. As Sir T Ronald Tunbridge noted uh, in the mid-1950s, even uh, the pattern of dietary prescription, which had been traditionally based around breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a supper snack, reflected middle-class norms. It showed no, quote, recognition that few working-class families had, even before the late war, two cooked meals a day. Such presumptions were not restricted to white working-class populations. Textbooks and invite, uh, advice literature rarely captured the cultural variation of Britain's changing post-war population. And this was not for a lack of visibility. Despite new entrants contributing significantly to cultural life, national wealth, and Britain's health and social services, Commonwealth migrants in particular face an increasingly hostile environment and demonization in political and public discourse. Similarly, despite contemporary discussions of diabetes in South Asia and the Caribbean, the predominant image of the diabetic in Britain remained white and British. During the 1950s and 60s, for example, uh, the, the Journal of the British Diabetic Association largely featured white faces in its imagery and regularly included discussions of Christmas without regards to celebrations of other faiths. Equally into the 1970s, uh, dietary advice and medical textbooks showed little acknowledgement of different dietary preferences. Mentions might be made to wide variation in normal feeding customs, as one textbook put it, but few concessions were made beyond the rare listing for items such as rice or yams. This exclusion was not always the case clinically. Uh, one interviewee from St. Kitts, who was diagnosed with diabetes in Birmingham in 1964, noted that his outpatient clinic knew that diabetes was something prevalent to West Indians and was well organized enough to give us rations based on West Indian diets. This may have been repeated elsewhere, uh, but as Julian Simpson has noted in his excellent new, uh, new book, um, discrimination and historical patterns of migration meant that healthcare, migrant healthcare workers were more likely to settle in large cities like Birmingham. As such, it is just as likely that workforce diversity influenced this more inclusive approach. Indeed, uh, complaints about racism and a lack of cultural and linguistic sensitivity in the health service emerged strongly in the 1980s and 1990s and suggests that such inclusivity in diabetes was probably limited. Uh, of course, such adjustments alone could not address all problems that faced patients. Um, George, who was our, um, the oral history interview I mentioned a second ago, uh, recalled how his diagnosis created problems in a social system based on a gendered division of labor. He felt guilty that his dietary requirements added to his wife's work, having to adjust herself to cook two separate meals for him and his family. So negotiating his regime, he asked his wife to, quote, make the meal as usual and I will eat what I think my rations come to. Now, uh, balancing conflicting social demands and desires also uh, contradicted regimen in other ways. Uh, one interviewee noted how her husband did not disclose his diagnosis so he could keep driving car races during the 1970s. He simply made sure he was high in blood glucose terms to avoid hypos on the track. 
This was a uh, practice used by another interviewee who ran high blood sugars during meetings because they felt that their timings for insulin and meals did not always align with the demands of the working day. In fact, during a particularly turbulent period of life in the 1980s, they had a number of problems with control. After being rebuked by their doctor, the conflict of priorities was made clear. As they put it, I had to keep a roof over our heads and I had two sons to feed. I had to be okay for work. That these challenges with working demands and family life continued in the 1980s is notable. Uh, these uh, the 1880s and 18, uh, 1980s, sorry, and 1990s uh, saw the emergence of a more patient-centered discourse in management programs and experimentation with practices like group therapy to help patients uh, come to terms with their diagnosis. Textbooks extolled the virtues of education and praised uh, recent recognition that, and I quote, the most important person in the healthcare team looking after the diabetic is the diabetic, end quote. This emphasis also saw uh, the British Diabetic Association dietary literature become far more inclusive and for, uh, the, and for the care and education of ethnic minority patients to be placed more under the microscope. There were numerous uh, factors driving this change in emphasis, from emerging evidence about the long-term dangers of poor control to technologies enabling greater self-management. Uh, particularly prominent here were the insulin pump and new blood glucose self-monitoring systems. Again, I've not included images here, but I believe Mark is going to save my bacon, as it were, later on. Um, Political discourse also uh, re-emphasized individualism and choice in social and economic life, and I would recommend another book by a colleague, Alex Mould, who has highlighted how these rhetorics of individualism um, changed older collective rights on uh, views, sorry, on patient rights and patient autonomy. Uh, and now, of course, it took time for new conceptualizations of the patient to spread, and patients continued to exceed regulations placed on them. One interviewee recalled in their terms, flexing their insulin injections to meet their appetite, despite receiving no training or encouragement to do so. Similarly, old dynamics were hard to shake. Uh, the same interviewee, for instance, recalls seeing their consultants as trying to be my head teacher. And those kind of historical, um, or biographical, I guess, associations between um, sort of school experience and hospital experience is something that comes up a number of times in oral history interviews. Um, uh, this interviewee said that this was a problem which continues to this day. Indeed, despite more sympathetic, uh, sympathetic systems of management that are currently in place, some patients still struggle psychologically with their illness. Um, this interviewee uh, admitted to gaming, in their terms, their tests daily to avoid being told how crap I am. Those were their terms. And limits to more inclusive care were recognized also at the turn of the century with the National Service Framework for Diabetes noting in 2002 that morbidity from complications is three and a half times higher amongst the poorest people in our country than the richest. I'm currently unaware of the latest figures, but my suspicions is that such inequality for poorer and more marginalized uh, patients continues to plague us today. Um, I can happily say I'm slightly ahead of time, uh, so this is good. Um, so I'll conclude uh, briefly. Um, I've implicitly tried to make the case that 
history matters, um, and there is a, obviously a, a professional self-interest involved there, but that's something I genuinely believe. Um, it can be tempting to see the history of medicine, um, and in, in some ways of diabetes in particular, as a progressive unfolding of scientific innovation, or as dominated by notable physicians and patients. And indeed, such, interest, uh, such histories are interesting and can help us aspire to, uh, to, to better in many ways. But they can also help us forget. When considered from the perspective of social and cultural histories, uh, such as the one I've briefly tried to offer today, uh, different stories and questions come to the fore. It becomes possible to understand the deep-rooted structures that have shaped patient care and patient experiences. By diversifying our stories, I believe we can think critically about exclusions from care and gain new understandings about the heritage of present-day problems. Acknowledging the social, political, economic, and cultural context of medicine can also encourage us to think more broadly about solutions and potentially be more realistic about the effects of progress itself. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.